Well, good morning. Many of you will remember when uh, Russian novelist and social critic Alexander Solzhenitsyn was invited to give the commencement uh, address at Harvard a couple decades ago. Uh, In that address, he said this, I spent my entire life under a communist regime, and I'll tell you that a society without any objective legal scale is a terrible one indeed. But a society with no other scale but the legal is not worthy of man either. Now, Solzhenitsyn saw clearly uh, that laws benefit society. Now, for a culture to function properly, it needs a set of laws its its people will agree to adhere to. I mean, without the rule of law, you have anarchy, you have chaos, you have Somalia. But here's the problem. Laws by themselves will never ensure a moral society. Uh, They can provide some moral restraint, but they're incapable of addressing the fundamental issues of the human heart. Now, I think that's exactly what God wrestles with in Leviticus chapters 18, 19, and 20, as he gives Israel his moral law. God knows that, I mean, without good laws, or that good laws will not guarantee good people. But he also knows that uh, without good laws, a society will always disintegrate into moral chaos. So God gives Israel his moral law. Now, you could say God's law is made up of two things. There are um, precepts, and secondly, there are penalties. Now, the precepts or statutes, um, they describe what's wrong. Uh, The penalties describe how wrong wrong really is. For instance, let's say you were arrested and found guilty of stealing a loaf of bread. So the judge sentences you to three days in jail. But if you've been found guilty of stealing a child from the home of her parents, you might have gotten 30 years behind bars. I mean, do you see how the penalties indicate the seriousness of the offense. Now, that's what's going on as we come to Leviticus chapter 20. In fact, it's a list of penalties associated with the statutes of God's moral law. So let's take a look at what's wrong, and then we'll look at how wrong that wrong really is. So let's begin chapter 20, verse 1. Notice what God says. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. Uh, the uh, The people of the land shall stone him with stones, and I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has been given some of his... 
He has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. Then he continues. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the, the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech, then and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut him off from his people from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. Now, you've got to remember that Israel has spent the past 430 years uh, under the influence of Egypt and the Egyptian gods, and now they're going into the land of Canaan, uh, uh, another area uh, that's a cesspool of immorality and vice. So what could go wrong? Well, Israel has proven time and time again that they're susceptible to embracing false gods. So here in the opening verses, God makes it clear that there's nothing more repulsive to him than the worship of the Canaanite false god Molech. Now, if you remember what we've covered so far in the book, uh, Molech was considered the god of pleasure. His image could be seen in a large bronze statue that had a hollowed-out belly, and wood could be placed in that hollowed-out section opening and burned. It would be like today a gigantic chiminea you might find on your back deck. So they would put wood in the hollowed-out section, and they would light it, and the fire would heat up the bronze, and when the bronze statue became red hot, uh, then the arms would begin to glow, and when the arms began to glow, that's when the people of Canaan would bring their children and literally lay them on the burning arms of Molech, sacrificing them to this god of pleasure. As... Historians tell us the the drone of drums would beat in the background. Now, history reveals that Israel certainly didn't follow this portion of the law. In fact, the worship of Molech was prevalent throughout Israel's history. Even Solomon, uh, he developed or he erected statues of Molech in the Valley of Hinnon, just outside the gates of Jerusalem. And historians tell us that you could hear the throb of the drums beating, boom, 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 drowning out the cries of children being sacrificed on the arms of Molech. And the sound would echo through the valley of Hinnon and even the streets of Jerusalem. Now, you you may be sitting there thinking, I can't believe parents would sacrifice their kids to a God of pleasure like that. Well... Does it remind you of anything today? I mean, we don't burn our kids with fire today. Instead, we burn them with saline in the womb in order to avoid the inconvenience that birth might bring. Or maybe we're sacrifice, or we're guilty of sacrificing our kids on the altar of career ambition or work schedules or busyness causing us to discipline our kids in anger and and, in annoyance because we feel so rushed rather than instructing them out of love and grace as God has instructed. But Molech worship wasn't the only thing uh, 
that uh, concerned God. There was also the practice of contacting the dead. I mean, verse 6 says, and persons, and the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I'll set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Now, did you notice the unusual language God has used here? I mean, he describes their actions as prostituting themselves with mediums and foul spirits. I mean, he knows that contacting the dead opens a person to demonic influence, which, by the way, took the nation down a path of self-destruction. You may remember that when King Saul uh, went and found the medium at Endor trying to get her to raise the spirit of Samuel so he could get instructions from Samuel. And then in the next book of First Chronicles chapter 10, we're told that that was the reason why Saul had his kingdom jerked from him. So God's saying, you've come from a culture that's practiced these things now, and you're going into a culture that promotes these things. Therefore, I mean, verse 7, you've got to consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart to be holy, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, if you're going to survive as a people, if you're going to survive as a nation, you're going to have to live differently than the people around you. So God knows that they're susceptible to embracing false gods, but God also knows that they're susceptible to ignoring the sacredness of family. I mean, God understands that family is the cornerstone of culture. It's at the core of society. In fact, it was Abraham Lincoln who said this, the strength of a nation lies in the homes of its people. You destroy the family, you can destroy a nation. And God knows that in order for this fledgling nation of Israel to survive, the family has got to thrive. You see, in God's economy, He wants Israel to know the family's sacred. And he wants to promote the sanctity of marriage and the intimacy of the marriage bed. He, he wants to protect children from physical and emotional harm that parents could bring. In other words, because God is faithful to his bride, he wants us faithful to our spouses. He wants the marriage bed uh, to be faithful and sex be something that's a bond between one man and one woman that lasts for a lifetime. And he knows that the misuse of sex can hurt the innocent and the powerless. And so for the next 12 verses of this chapter, he gives Israel nine prohibitions designed to protect the moral purity of the family. In fact, in verse 9, he prohibits bringing a curse against parents. In verse 10, he outlaws adultery with another man's wife. In verse 11 and 12, he prohibits incest. In 13, he mentions homosexuality. In 14, he forbids bigamy and polygamy. In 15 and 16, he bars bestiality. In 17, he prohibits cohabitation. In 18, he bars sex with a woman while menstruating. In 19, he censors sexual relationships with relatives. In other words, God gets very specific here regarding his statutes as they pertain to the family. So just how wrong are these wrongs? Well, I want to warn you here. 
what God says is disturbing. Every statue carries with it a serious penalty. I mean, placing a curse upon your parents, adultery, incest, homosexuality, bigotry, bestiality, those were all capital offenses. Cohabitation with your sister in verse 17 and intercourse with a woman during her period, that uh, was means for removal from the nation of Israel. And then sex with relatives in 19 that carries with the penalty of childlessness, which God says he himself will enforce. Almost everything mentioned in in chapter 20 flies in the face of modern day culture today. Everything. But we've got to remember that these laws, God's moral law, is like a neighborhood covenant. I mean, if you want to live in a certain neighborhood, you're going to have to agree to abide by the covenants of that neighborhood or you can't live there. Well, God's moral law is like that. It's like a neighborhood covenant. And anyone choosing to live under the blessings of Israel given by God must agree to live under the rules of the covenant. So, I mean, the question I have is, then what can we learn from God's moral law? I mean, remember, the law was never designed to impart life. Instead, it's incapable of addressing the fundamental issues of the human heart. You remember that? All the law can do is condemn sin and provide some kind of a deterrent. So what can we learn from God's moral law? Well, I want you to listen to how Paul describes the law to the church in in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, he says this, Well, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Now, the Greek word tutor is a difficult word to translate into English. It's not talking about some kind of kind-hearted, compassionate teacher. I mean, this word is unique. It refers to a strong disciplinarian whose job it is to train someone harshly. And isn't that what Leviticus 20 has said? I mean, it treats us harshly. First of all, exposing sin, and then secondly, condemning us to death. In fact, I want you to see how Paul describes that harsh treatment as he writes the church in Rome. In chapter 7 of that book, he says this, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which I thought would bring life, I found to bring death. But the law was never intended to impart life. It's intended to expose sin in our lives and condemn us so that we might see the true condition of our hearts. So what can we learn from God's moral law? Well, Paul wrote his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.8. And he says this, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Huh. So what is a lawful use of the law? Well, I think we can learn a lot by watching how Jesus used the law. 
In fact, if you'll turn with me over to John chapter 8, you'll discover a passage of Scripture you may be familiar with. In this passage, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And a group of scribes and Pharisees bring in a woman who's caught in adultery. I mean, notice what took place, chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commands us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. Now, the religious leaders were correct. Adultery carried with it the penalty of capital of a capital crime. But I want you to notice in the text, John just doesn't tell us what's happening there. It also reveals the motives and the intentions of the religious leader's heart. Verse 6, look at that again. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, some sins are obvious and easy to legislate against. I mean, sins like murder, robbery, uh, lying, cheating. But the intentions and motives of the heart, they're difficult to detect. I mean, they masquerade themselves as something more noble. Pride's like that, by the way. In fact, I remember growing up as a kid, uh, my favorite television program came on Sunday nights. It was Mission Impossible. I mean, I wouldn't miss it. I watched it religiously. Uh, Jim Phelps, played by Peter Graves, was a master of disguise. I mean, he, he could look like a delivery man. He could look like an ambassador or a news reporter. And his disguises were so thorough, so intricately precise that they would fool even the people that knew him best. In fact, in one particular episode, a man was seeking um, uh, Jim Phelps the entire program, but could never find him. Near the end of the program, Phelps comes into the room, sits next to the man on a bench, looks the man in the eye and asks him a question and the man doesn't recognize him. He has no idea that this is the one he's been seeking the entire program. Did you know pride is just like that? It shows up disguised. It mingles in the crowd undetected. I mean, it's there, but it's unrecognized, even by those who seek it out. So how would you legislate against pride? You couldn't, could you? It it would be impossible. And and one of the worst manifestations of pride is self-deceit. Now, by self-deceit, I'm talking about a willingness or an inability to come face-to-face with our wrongdoing, our sin. Instead, we end up collecting a repertoire of lies we tell ourselves in order to ease our conscience, to save face explain away our behavior, but 
want you to know Jesus has a way of seeing through these things. So, let me know in the humiliation of the woman caught in adultery and being able to see clearly the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, Jesus surprises everyone. He does nothing. He just bends over and takes his finger and begins doodling in the dirt as if he had not heard a word they said. That's strange, isn't it? But you need to know, Jesus was using the law lawfully. He was allowing his accusers time to condemn themselves, to hang themselves. I mean, notice what John says in the next verse, verse 7. And so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who had heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. Wow. So what did Jesus write in the dirt? That's what everybody wants to know. Well, some have suggested that he's just doodling, buying time to kind of collect his thoughts. But we forget, he's the Son of God. I think he had his thoughts pretty much collected. Now, others have suggested that he was scrawling the name of prostitutes. These pious pretenders had visited themselves. And when they noticed what he had done, they became embarrassed, dropped their rocks, and left. Others have said that, no, he wrote the name uh, of each stone-toting accuser. And when they saw that Jesus knew who they were, they turned and walked away. Others have said, no, they wrote down the, he wrote down the list of each religious leader's sin. And when the schemer saw his sin on the ground, he became embarrassed and turned and walked away. But you've got to look back at verse 9 for a moment. It says, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. So what did Jesus write in the sand? Well, we don't know. But it really wasn't what he wrote. It's what he said that caused them to judge themselves. I mean, the passage says, those who heard it were convicted by their conscience. I mean, when Jesus said, he who is without sin, you throw the first stone, well, he was using the law lawfully to open their eyes to see the duplicity of their hearts. You see, the law was never intended to address the deepest cries of the human heart. In fact, instead, the law, it exposes and abandons us so that we might see clearly a Father who loves us and forgives us. In fact, the the law, it berates us and it betrays us so we might become open to one who promises never to desert us. I mean, the law will condemn us to death, giving us no hope so we might recognize the only one who's really offering a life that's eternal. The law is designed to bring us to a place where before God we cry out for grace and for mercy. I mean, do you see it? I mean, Jesus is not so much interested in our obedience as he is 
our hearts, what's going on in here. He knows it's possible to have your behavior right in line with the law, but your heart out of sync with God. You see, the good news is Jesus has never been interested in rule-keeping. Rule-keeping can fool us into thinking everything is doing just great inside here. But it may not be, and Jesus knows, that when our public performance gets out of sync with what's going on in our heart, that we begin losing touch with others and with God himself. By the way, that's why when the young scribe asked Jesus what's the greatest commandment, Jesus answered the way he did. Do you remember how he answered in Mark chapter 12? He said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all, and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's love, not law, that will address the matters of the heart. And that's the heart is from where all of life flows. So Jesus answered this young scribe, and the lights begin coming on for him. Remember what the scribe said in the next verse? This is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifice. In other words, what's taking place in here is far more significant than my behavior, my offerings, and my sacrifice. And notice how Jesus encourages this young man. In the next verse, he says, You are not far from the kingdom of God. I mean, can you see it? The Christian life cannot be lived as a set of principles or ethics. It's actually a love affair from the heart. It can't be managed by steps or programs. I mean, the grace of the gospel frees us up to love God and others from the whole heart. You see, life changes dramatically when romance enters your life. And your walk with God will change dramatically when you begin viewing it as a passionate romance between you and God. And that's why Jesus answers the woman caught in adultery the way he does. Back in verse 10 of chapter 8, he says, Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, when we ignore the faith aspects of the heart and try to live the Christian life as a doctrine or a moral ethic, then our passion for God becomes crippled. Or worse, it becomes perverted. Or even worse, a divorce takes place between our hearts and the purposes of God. To the religious leaders of Jesus' day, I mean, they wanted to follow the rules, the externals, the ought, the duty, uh, the service. But Jesus ends up using this very law to disturb their world so they can begin seeing what's going on inside. Do you know God did something like that? Disturbed my inner world and allowed me to see the duplicity of my heart a number of years ago? Now, I grew up in the South, the deep South, uh, surrounded by all sorts of prejudice. In fact, I remember in high school when my, my bigoted grandmother came to live with us, and I looked for every opportunity I could to yank her chain. 
talk about my black friends at school. I love just, just kind of jacking her around like that. I, I prided myself in being tolerant and being accepting. And then one day while watching a newscast on TV reporting the death of a woman, who, of a, a young teenage woman who was brutally beaten to death, God grabbed my attention. As I listened to that report, they threw the picture of that woman up on the screen, and it was a black woman. And I said to myself, oh, that's not as bad. I'm telling you, it was at that moment God pulled back the curtain on the dark recesses of my heart and exposed the pride that had covered up my prejudice that I didn't know was there. And it sickened me. And I'm so glad he did. You see, Jesus loves taking whatever law we think we ought to follow and then using it to expose the things that we allow to keep us at a distance from from God and cause us to live a life of self-deception. Would you be willing to pray what David prayed in Psalm 139? He said this, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Father, that is our prayer. prayer. We we know you see the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And and we live much of our life self-deceived. Would you search us and know us? Reveal to us what's going on there. And in your kind, compassionate, but thorough fashion, reveal to us the duplicities of our heart. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming. And if this is your first time at Horizon, let me encourage you to drop by the third room on the left as you leave. That's the hearth room. we got some people down there that would love to put a name with a face. And hope you enjoy the rest of this day. And see you next week.